You're probably used to getting fed steak and gravy and mashed potatoes and everything on Sunday morning, and today it's going to be a happy meal. But at least we'll leave happy, all right? I want you to look in your Bibles into John chapter 3 and verse 30. John chapter 3 and verse 30. In Sunday school, you learned John 3.16. It's probably one of the first verses that we ever learned. <clears throat> but I would say, um, me on the other hand, I, was, I learned, be sure your sin will find you out. I was one of them kids. But John 3.16, we've probably all learned from, from the time that we were young. And in this chapter, we see that Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and this is one of the most important chapters in your Bible. And in John chapter 3 and verse 30, this is where I take my life verse. The Lord showed me this at a young age when I was in my young teens, and I surrendered to the ministry. I was saved at 18 years old and uh, surrendered to the ministry and wanted to follow whatever God had for me. I tell people, they say, well, what were you called to do? And back then they said, well, what are you called to do? Are you called to be an evangelist? Are you called to be a missionary? Are you called to be a pastor? That's some hard questions for somebody that just surrendered. And I said, what I'm going to do is write a blank check and let God fill it in. And that's what we all need to do. And since then, I have traveled to the mission field. I spent three years in evangelism. I've been an assistant pastor. We've, been, we've helped with young people. We've been all over the place. And we believe that the Lord has shown Himself uh, true in our lives because of that fact that we always say as God just use us, if it be your will. In John chapter 3 and verse 30, seven words that mean so much. Say this with me. John chapter 3 and verse 30, say it with me. He must increase, but I must decrease. Say that one more time. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, in your mind and in your flesh, there was probably something there sometimes that kind of, you know, just it feels like it just kind of rubs you the wrong way a little bit. Our flesh wants to be glorified. Our, fr our flesh wants to rise up and be great. But the Bible says that in order for Him to get big, we got to get little. Now, for somebody that's been short all his life, that's not hard. But when it comes to our pride, we must understand that in order for God to use us, we've got to get out of the way. And so I want to speak to you this morning on this phrase that it's all about Him. It's all about Him. I want to start by telling you a quick story. On August 27th, 1727, a prayer meeting started in a little town called Ernuk, Germany, a little village. And it lasted for almost a hundred years. This little prayer meeting changed the world. The impact of this hundred-year prayer meeting reached far beyond the small settlement of Ernuk. This radical love for Jesus and fire of the Spirit that rose up rooted in them during those 24-7 prayer meetings. And it gave birth to one of the most prolific missionary movements of history and became an inspiration and challenge to the modern missions movement that would soon be born. The Moravian church sent out hundreds of missionaries to every corner of the globe. 
Those Moravian missionaries had a profound effect on men like William Carey, known as the father of modern missions. John Wesley, one of the leaders of the revivals that hit the United Kingdom and the American colonies in the 1730s and 40s. And the Methodist revivals and the Great Awakening alongside Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. But in 1732, five years after the revival, two Moravian tradesmen, 36-year-old David Nietzscheman and 26-year-old Johann Leonard Dober, became the first missionaries to leave Ernut. They had heard of the plight of African slaves on the island of St. Thomas in the Caribbean who had no one to share the gospel with them. And they determined to go by any means necessary, even if it meant selling themselves into slavery to minister among those slaves. According to the story that has stirred missionary zeal the world over for the past 300 years, as they stood on the ship departing the wharf, looking for what they believed to be the last time the faces of their loved ones, they raised their hands together and cried this phrase, May the Lamb that was slain receive the reward of His suffering. May the Lamb that was slain receive the reward of His suffering. The story goes on to tell that they got to an island there to sell themselves into slavery and they wouldn't even buy them. So they ended up sneaking onto the ship and and selling themselves into slavery. And later on, there were reports of those that got saved from the island of St. Croix because of these people who said, we will go if it means giving everything we have and leaving everything behind to tell them about Jesus. This is it. They were deeply in love with the slain lamb. They cherished the love He showed on the cross and thunderously affirmed His infinite worth and passionately desired that He would have what He deserved, the reward of His suffering. Just a simple thought. Say this with me. It's all about Him. It's all about Him. Now, say this with me. It's not about me. It's not about me. He must increase, but I must decrease. What is it about then? What is it about Him? Number one, I believe this morning that it's about His will. It's all about His will, not mine. Jesus in the Garden of Eden, or in the Garden of Gethsemane said, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He had said, let this cup pass from me. And the flesh that he had, and the, and the, and the, uh, the duress that he was under, he said, let this come, cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Nevertheless, not my will. It's not about my will. It's not about your will. It's all about his will. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 3, 1 through 3 says, I beseech you, I beg you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your unreasonable service? No, your reasonable service. You say, well, I don't know if I'm able to leave behind the things that I need to and I don't know if I can step forward and follow Christ in faith. And he says, guess what? But it's reasonable. How is it reasonable? Because Jesus Christ walked up Calvary's hill, laid His life down, was nailed to a cross for you and for me. And we have a reasonable service to give Him this morning. We have to give Him everything because He gave it all. Well, yeah, look at the things that we have and 
and all the belongings and all this stuff that one of these days we can't take with us. And so all we have to give Jesus Christ right now is this body of flesh. My hands, my feet, my mouth. I've got to give it to Him for His will. And then it goes on in verse 2, "...and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God." It's about His will. Ephesians 5, 15-17 says, "...see then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil." Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. How many of you ever remember the green stamps? You would take those greenbacks to the store and you'd be able to do what with them? Redeem them for something. And I'm glad that one day Jesus Christ shed His precious blood to redeem an old unworthy sinner as I. I'm thankful that Jesus Christ saw this nothing and went to the cross in obedience to the will of the Father because it was all about His will, not mine. One man I recently spoke to gave me a good lesson in time. And he said, we hear all, this, these, all these people say that we're going to make time. We're going to try and make time for this and make time for that. But the reality is that we cannot create more time. We have to then take time, redeem time. We cannot make time to do things. That's why when we wake up in the morning, we take time to read the Scripture. We take time to be in the will of God because we cannot make time. We have to redeem time. Proverbs 12 verse 15 says, The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. When we are in the will of God, we use wisdom. But when we step out of the will of God, the Bible says that we're foolish. Fools are unwise, undiscerning, and selfish. I grew up watching one of the greatest superheroes ever in the world, Mr. T. He said, I pity the fool. And if you're not in God's will, you're in God's way. And I pity the fool. Let me say that again. If you are not in God's will, you are in God's way. And I don't want to be in the way. I want to be in His will. The fool puts his once over God's will. When Sunday comes around and we focus a lot on the people who aren't at church, we like to talk about those who went to the lake or go to the race or the football game or the kids that have basketball games or we just up and say, well, they're probably down at the bar or something. Had an all-nighter last night and they couldn't be at church this morning. But guess what? You're here. You're here this morning. But is it all about you or is it all about Him? See, I don't come to have my presence known. I come to be in His presence. I come to church every Sunday and every Wednesday because I need the fellowship of the saints. I need the encouragement of the preacher. I need that. And the Bible says that in the last days we ought to be doing it more and more. Every time there's an opportunity, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. It's His will that we should unite. We should be together in this place when the doors are open. 
Isaiah 29 verse 13 says, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near Me with their mouth and with their lips do honor Me, but have removed their heart far from Me, and their fear toward Me is taught by the precepts of man. I believe that as people of God, we ought to fear the Lord and not the precepts of men. I believe we ought to walk in liberty and walk the way that God wants us to rather than walking just because a man said so. We have a lot of drones walking around every day in suits and ties and they've got a list of things that they follow a mile long. But when it comes to Scripture, they're adolescent. They're still on the milk. Why? Because they followed the precepts of men and not the will of God. And we need to follow the will of the Lord. I'm glad you're here this morning, but I'm going to ask you as you're sitting there reflecting on things. Can I ask you, are you in His will? This morning, why are you here? Why are you in this place? Did you come hungry this morning? Did you come ready to know what the Word of the Lord said? And I ask you this morning, are you in the will of God? What is the why? What is the why? So number one, are you in His will? Because it's all about His will. And number two, it's about His work. It's about His work. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 and 7 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior that being justified by His grace we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's not about our works of righteousness. We cannot do anything to gain that. It's all because of the work that Jesus Christ did. It's all about Him. It's all about the work that He did. It's all about His work. He did it all for me, and I didn't have to do anything. I just received the gift. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 6-10. through I know it's a lot of Scripture, but I love my Bible. (laughs) For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. There He is again. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be or that He heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. I'm going to finish in a minute, but it's about His work. Here you ask the question, and many have asked, what is that thorn in the flesh? I heard one preacher say it, You've already met that thorn in the flesh. Sometimes that thorn of the flesh can be outward. Someone around you that just continually tries to discourage you. That one that continually tries to manipulate your life. And those that try and lay hold on you. And you have to get through that. And you have to understand that He asked and asked for that thorn in the flesh to be removed. But it did not get removed because God placed it there for a purpose for His work. Lest I should be exalted, there are some things that God will put you through to keep you where He wants you because it's about His work in our life. And so God will place things in our life and allow because He arranges or allows everything 
that comes into our life. And that's why when the work begins to get hard and life begins to get stressful and those things that make the tears swell up in your eyes and the, your heart hurt, those things are there for a purpose and you just have to continually lift your hands and say, Lord, I need You as we sang earlier. I need You, Lord. I need You to show me Your will and Your way and Your work and the purpose for this in my life because, God, it's all about You. And whatever's going on in my life, God, it's not about me. It's all about You. Job said, wow, God, is this happening to me? And my friends have come to me and they're starting to say that I've done wrong. And God, I know that there's a purpose and a will for this and a reason for this. But God, why is this happening? And it's amazing to see God's response to Job. He just says, Job, look how little you are and how big I am. Who do you think did all this? Who do you think started this? Who do you think's going to end this? Who do you think's allowing this? There's a bigger purpose for why you're going through this, Job. And though Job could not see it, there was a devil that was standing up there accusing the brethren. And God was using Job as a trophy of grace to show the devil that he would not do what the devil thought he would. That Job would not turn his back on the Lord and curse God. And it's amazing to see the work of God in people's lives. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it continues in verse 8. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And He said unto me, (laughs) My grace (laughs) is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, and in distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. He must increase. He must increase. And I must decrease. Those tests and trials, those tribulations... And all that come into our life to bring us will bring us to the realization that we cannot do it ourselves. And however, it is nothing compared to the complete work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. When you go back and read Isaiah 53:3 and look at hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked this earth, Isaiah spoke of the things that would go on. He said, He'll grow up before Him a tender plant, a root out of dry ground. He is despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we esteemed Him not. He is despised and afflicted, rejected, beaten, scourged. We esteemed Him not. Jesus went through all that. He did all that work so that we could be called the sons of God. So that we could stand in His righteousness so that we could one day walk through the gates of heaven and spend an eternity with Him. It's about His work. And then last but not least, it's about His worship. It's about His worship. The Old Testament law taught against worshiping anyone other than God. So if Jesus accepted worship of Himself well then this would mean that he actually believed that he was divine. And so did Jesus accept worship? Well, in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 2, a leper worshipped at the feet of Jesus after he was healed. 
And later in Matthew 9, verse 18, a ruler knelt before Jesus after he had healed his son. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 33, the disciples worshiped Jesus after he walked on water, saying, Truly, thou art the Son of God. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 25, a Canaanite woman worshipped Jesus. In Mark chapter 5 and verse 6, says of the demon-possessed man, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. He worshipped Jesus. In John chapter 9, verse 38, a blind man came and worshipped Jesus. And the Bible clearly states, he said, Lord, I believe, and worshipped Him. After the resurrection of Jesus, we're told that when they, the disciples, saw Him, they worshipped Him. Thomas worshipped Jesus when he saw Him alive again. John 20 verse 28 teaches that Thomas responded, My Lord and my God. And one of my favorite accounts happened when Jesus was sitting at dinner in the Pharisee's house. And here came a woman with a little, <laughs> with a little alabaster box full of precious ointment and she broke it and sacrificed it for the worship of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 5, John stands in heaven and he hears the question, who is worthy to open the book and to open the seals thereof? And John began to weep much because he said, there's nobody that's there that can open the book. And then the angel said, weep not. (laughs) For for the Lamb. A Lamb. And he looks up and he sees a lamb. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. John begins to look for the lion and he sees a lamb. The lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. We got to go to Ireland a year ago this week. I'd be remiss if I didn't say that I felt like I'd love to be there again instead of here, but praise the Lord. It was beautiful. And I'll never forget, we were on a tour and we were in this bus and we came around the corner to a farm. And over there in Ireland, you ain't seen mud like there is over there. Rocks and hills and they have bogs and they have all this mud. And so all, the, all of the sheep there were just dirty. And as we came over the hill, we saw all those dirty sheep. And I began to look. I said, how in the world can one of those be spotless? And out from behind a mama came a newborn little lamb as white as snow. And I thought, my goodness, of all things that represented the conquering king was a little slain lamb. That was my lamb. That was my lamb. The sacrifice for my sin. I love to think about the worship of Jesus Christ throughout the Scripture, but I love to think about the first time the word worship was ever mentioned is Abraham. God says, Abraham, take thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest, and walk up that hill, and I want you to kill him and sacrifice him for me. Abraham didn't argue. The next morning he was up early before the sun ever rose, splitting wood. And he laid that wood on his son. And as they got close to that mountain, 
Abraham looked at his servants and he said, I and the lad will go yonder and worship. The first time worship is ever mentioned in your Bible, there is no music. There is no dancing. There's a man taking his son up a hill to sacrifice him. He got up halfway up that mountain and Isaac looks at Abraham and says, Father, and the father says, Here am I, son. And he says, Here's the wood for the burnt offering. He said, But where is the lamb? Abraham said, Son, God will provide Himself a lamb. Not for Himself, Himself a lamb. And as they stood there on that mountain, Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, shows up and says, Abraham, stop. Now I know that thou honorest, that thou hast faith. And they looked over and they heard a noise, and over in the crown of thorns was a ram stuck by his horns, a male lamb stuck by his horns. God had provided Himself a lamb. And so when I studied this word worship, I came upon the fact that the word worship comes from an old English word meaning worth-ship. Whatever you put worth in, that's what you will worship. And so I ask you this morning, what are you putting worth in? What is your worth in? Some put their worth in houses and land and riches and honor and glory, but I want to put my worth in Jesus Christ. I heard the phrase that you may not be paid much as a minister, but the retirement's out of this world. And that is the truth. That is the truth. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And that God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. You want to do amazing things that will confound people? You want to do amazing things that are mighty things? Get little and let God get big. Joshua was just a young man who had been there in the land of Canaan and had come back with an honest and good report. And he was brave and he was young and he was little. But out of that, out of that, he became those, the one that led those people into the land of Canaan, that led God's people across the river and into the land of Canaan. They looked over certain people like David, but they didn't realize that that little boy that was out there in the sheep uh, in the pasture that was singing to those sheep was actually the next king of Israel. And you don't realize, but the very little things that you're looking over may be the big things that God uses in someone's life. You may come here this morning and say, I'm not much. Well, guess what? That's the best thing for God to use. Little boy comes up and says, all I've got is five loaves and two fishes. And he said, well, let me have it. And I fed the 5,000 out of that little boy. It's amazing to see that God uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And of all the things God could have used was a conquering lamb. When Satan saw a lamb and man in their lust for blood slaughtered the Lamb of God, where Satan saw a lamb and where Israel just saw another man, heaven saw the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
And as we read in Revelation, the King of kings and Lord of lords is represented as a Lamb who is worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, worthy of every song we could ever sing, worthy of every prayer we could ever pray, worthy of every instrument we could ever play, worthy of every effort we could ever give. He's worthy of every praise we could ever send. He is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. And one of these days, all I'm going to do is sit at His feet for about a million years and say, He's worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy. We were talking last night, Miss Christine and Anne-Marie and I, about people who say, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to sit and I'm going to ask this so-and-so. Every single person that got to go up there from down here was scared to death. That's South Carolina language for I'm scared. Every single person that crossed that veil into the throne room was terrified. The fear of the Lord was there. And all I know is when I get to heaven, the fear of the Lord will be in me. But there will be something else there too. There will be a slain lamb. There will be a lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. And though in that fear and that reverence to God, I will probably be on my knees bawling my eyes out if I know myself for a thousand years. And I tell you this morning, I'm here because of His will. I'm here because of His work. And I'm here because of His worship. Can we say like the young men, those Moravian missionaries, may the Lamb that was slain receive the reward of His suffering. There's one more story that I'd like to share this morning. It's about a young man named Charles Tinley. If you've ever heard of Charles Tinley, He's wrote songs such as Nothing between my soul and the Savior so that His blessed face may be seen. I love old hymns like that. But Charles Tenley was born a slave on a plantation. And by the age of five, his mother and his father had both come out of his life and died. And at the age of five, he was there and been taken by his aunt and was still in slavery until the slaves were freed. And at the age of 12, he was freed and then had nothing to do in the evenings after he did his daily work. So he began to go to a church down the road. And the people there in that church began to love on that little boy and love on that little boy and show them the love of Jesus. And Charles Tinley got saved and they began to teach him how to read and how to write. Charles Tinley one day as a teenager said, I have an announcement to make. God has called me to preach. And all of them got real excited. No, the story says one man looked at him and said, But Charles, you're just a little boy from Maryland. You don't have much. How in the world are you going to go preach? He said, I don't know, but I'm going to Cape May, New Jersey, and I'm going to start a church there. Little Charles Tenley goes to the Cape May, New Jersey and sits on the street in a little town there and begins to preach. And about six weeks after he sat there preaching, people started coming to hear what he had to say. In process of time, Charles Tenley winds up in Philadelphia. And there in Philadelphia has a church of three and four thousand by the end of it, the Tindley Tabernacle was built. And the Tindley Tabernacle would hold almost 10,000 people on one given Sunday. But Charles Tindley was told this, You'll never be nothing, boy. And Charles Tindley said, You're right. 
I'm nothing, but He's everything. And for the first couple years, that is all that Charles Tinley would preach. I'm nothing, and He's everything. Charles Tinley began to write these hymns and the emotion that he had and the experience of everything began to come off the pages. And to this day we sing his hymns and they have an impact on our life. He impacted gospel music for years to come. He was the grandfather of gospel music. And Charles Tinley took a stand and said, I am nothing, but he's everything. And he deserves everything. It's not about me and it's not about you. He died for me. The least I can do is live for Him. This morning, I ask you, have you come to Christ with the things that you have and said, God, take what I've got and use it for Your honor and for Your glory? If you try to live for self, you'll come out with nothing. But if you live for Him, you'll get everything. One of these days, I look forward to stepping into glory land and seeing what happened through the preaching and through the ministry that God has called us to. I may not see numbers here, but God didn't call me for numbers. He called me to preach. And this morning I ask you, what is your life? What is your life? James says it's a vapor. You can't make time. You have to take time, redeem time to do what God's will is. It's about His will. It's about His work. It's about His worship. It's all about Him. As we stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning, I'm not sure how you do invitation around here, but I want to ask you this morning, if you have anything you need to do, anything you need to do with God, I ask you if you do it this morning. If you're not saved, this would be the greatest day to ask Jesus to save you. If you have never presented your body a living sacrifice and surrendered to the will of God, today is a great day.